0: Coming at the end of, of such a stimulating two and a half days uh, is both a boon and a bane for a speaker. It's a bane because you find that things you wanted to say have already been said. And I was busy yesterday as John Stallworthy was talking, crossing off slides slide that I had um, prepared for this morning. But it's a boon too because you can actually bring together some of the strands uh, and pick up some of the points that are made along the way. So that during the middle of my talk, in a moment... Uh, I'm going to have a small digression on trench overcoats. <laughs> and I'm very grateful to uh, people who have mentioned those in passing. Uh, I was delighted to hear Meg just now talk about the First World War as one of the most enduring legends in human culture. Because that seems to me to go very well with the quotation I put on my front here from Tim Kendall's new bu- uh, Poetry of the First World War Anthology. If it is true that not since the siege of Troy has a conflict been so closely defined by the poetry it inspired, then it is probably also absolutely true that this is one of the most enduring legends in English culture. But as soon as one puts it in these terms, those are the sorts of words uh, that raise the hackles of... Historians, And I want to say something about that in a little while. In fact, there will be a 2 minutes hate in the middle of my um, <laughs> talk. Uh, and the object of my 2 minutes hate, I'm afraid, is Jeremy Paxman. So... <laughs> <follow that. laughs> I want to focus on three points in particular uh, where I think the impact of the poets is significant. One of them will be right now at the present time, literally in the last month or so, but I shall focus very much also on the late 20s and early 30s, but I want to say something about the First World War itself and the impact and indeed the understanding of war poetry from 1915 onwards. And to introduce that, I'd like to say, if you'll forgive me, something about my own experience uh, of encountering war poetry uh, as a child and then as a student. I was born in 1949, so I was at school... Uh, from 8 to 18 between 1957 and 1967. I went to a very small, traditional, old-fashioned boarding prep school where we actually had that book as our poetry book. That is the Poems for Today, Poems of Today, which Meg has mentioned and John Stallworthy mentioned yesterday, published in 1915 by the English Association, an extraordinarily conservative um, account of contemporary poetry I think that's absolutely the right way to put it but that was the book that we had literally that was my copy I still have it at home and from that the only war poem as such that we had to learn by heart we had to learn everything by heart uh, was of course The Soldier by Rupert Brooke the other kinds of war poetry that we learned were Horatius capes the bridge Drake's drum the burial of Sir John Moore at Corunna all that kind of generation of war poetry. And I think I can say with absolute honesty that until 1962, I had never heard of Wilfred Owen. Mm -hmm. Certainly had never encountered him in the classroom. And my encounter with Wilfred Owen uh, came through, interestingly, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. Because... I was, a, I was born in Birmingham, and I remember at the age of six standing on the street corner to wave a flag at the Queen as she came past to lay the foundation stone for the new Coventry Cathedral. And Britain's war requiem was commissioned specifically for the dedication, the consecration of that uh, new building, Basil Spence's Cathedral, in 1962. And I can recall the sort of shock of hearing words like my subject is war and the pity of war being sung not spoken you know at the age of 12, 13 this was something absolutely new in my experience but that was how I first encountered Wilfred Owen I then went on to my next school and we had a Raymond O'Malley and Dennis Thompson poetry anthology which contained Dulce Decorum Est which again we had to learn by heart and (coughs) very little else actually I can recall uh, being introduced to the poem Futility uh, in the sixth form, I wonder whether if Owen had not lighted on the term futility as the title for that poem, we would hear so much complaint about First World War poetry now as having presented this idea of the war as being utterly futile. It's, it seems to me that the title Futility has had quite a bearing on the way in which the First World War poetry is perceived by people who don't actually read the poetry at all. (laughs) Point to which I shall return. I went on to university at uh, Durham and I was very lucky to go to Durham because I had a tutor who most improbably encouraged me to read Ezra Pound. And I have to say that I was probably more aware of Pound's Hugh Selwyn Mobily and the section that begins Oh, here died a myriad and of the best among them Uh, You know, non dulce, non et decor, for an old bitch gone in the teeth for a lost civilization. I was more conscious of that as war poetry than I was of the range of poetry that we've been discussing this weekend. And when I completed (coughs) my degree, uh, I wanted to go on to do uh, an MA, and in those days it was purely by thesis uh, at Durham. And I was required to write a 40,000 word thesis... I wanted to do it on Pound, but my supervisor very wisely said, everybody's writing on Pound at the moment. Why don't you choose someone who no one is writing on? Well, I'd become very interested in imagism as a result of talking about Pound, and I lighted on Richard Aldington. And I I was very pleased indeed uh, that Gerald mentioned Aldington uh, yesterday because he seemed to me to have been a conspicuous absence in this conversation. There's so much of what we've been hearing, particularly... Um, Meg's discussion of the idea of ghosts comes prominently uh, in Aldington's poetry as well and I'm going to be showing you one poem by Aldington later on in a moment when I first started teaching school teaching in the early 1970s war poetry had become a major topic and the anthology that we had at my school was the new one by Maurice Hussey But I also went out and bought Brian Gardner's Up the Line to Death uh, and quite shortly after that, Ian Parsons' Men Who March Away. Those were the places where I first found war poetry. And I shall refer to the Gardner one again uh, in a little while. But one of the things that astonished me when I got into the department, the English department of the school where I was teaching, and they had a rather good bookstore, but it was full of old books, and lo and behold, that one was still on the shelves there. So that book has, in a sense, haunted me all my (laughs) life. (laughs) You may remember that John, yesterday, John Solworthy, quoted from its preface. Naturally, the preface says, there are some poems directly inspired by the present war, but nothing, it's hoped, which may not, in happier times, bear translation into any European tongue. This is May 1915 and it's very interesting to me that this preface looks forward to a time when it will be possible for Germans to read these English poems without feeling offended because that I think is the subtext of that, and you'll remember perhaps that a number of poets, Rupert Brooke not least among them, had been very strongly pro-Germany Brooke talks in that wonderful and extraordinary essay An Unusual Young Man, which is at the end of Letters Letters from America about how as he sits on the cliffs of Dover, trying to work out what on earth his response is to the First World War, he simply cannot resolve the problem of what he is to make of the fact that he has so many friends and so many happy memories of his time in Berlin. It just puzzles him. And then, at the end of this preface, this is the bit that John read, there's no arbitrary isolation of one theme from another, they mingle and interpenetrate throughout to the music of Pan's Flute. Nice Edwardian link back there. Do you remember the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, the central chapter of The Wind in the Willows? Pan pipes, pan's flute, and of love's Violin, and the bugle call of endeavour with the capital E and the passing bell of death. Well, this is May 1915, and there's a brief reference uh, also in that preface to one who has within the last month Gone singing to his death, and that's a reference to Rupert Brooke again, because Brooke, you may remember, was actually died on Shakespeare's birthday, the 23rd of April, St. George's Day. How convenient was that? I had thought, with the reference to going singing to his death, that it might have been a reference to Charles Sawley, you know, uh, all the hills and bales along, uh, you know, go singing all the bales along, but not. Sawley actually dies later in 1915. There's an interesting journal that I don't think many people perhaps are aware of. It's called The Highway. Here it is. And on its front it says, A monthly journal of education for the people. It's the object of The Highway to supply a platform on which those engaged in manual labour may meet those engaged in the profession of teaching to discuss The problems of education and more particularly those problems which concern the workers. This is published by the WEA, the Workers' Education Association. And this issue that I've got is from 1918 and it has an article in it, a short article, War and English Poetry, which interestingly is a review of a publication by the English Association, a lecture called. War and English Poetry, given by the then President of the English Association, uh, Lord Crewe. I have to say that the EA was, I hope it isn't still, but was a very conservative organisation indeed. In fact, during the war, its president was Asquith before the, the Prime Minister, and in 1918, Horribile dictu, the um, president for that year was Sir Henry Newbolt. Play up, play up, and play the game. But I find it very interesting that the WEA is actually reporting on publications about poetry from the First World War uh, in its journal, publications from the English Association. Notice that first point. What war poem before 1914 gives the subtler emotions of the poet's heart as such poets as Julian Grenfell and Noel Hodgson do? It's worth just unpinning that. It's almost as if to say... Grenfell and Hodgson take war poetry and take our understanding of the subtler emotions of the soldier's heart further than any war poetry before has done so. Certainly any war poetry since uh, Homer. And in fact, Lord Crewe's uh, thesis in, this, um, in his lecture was that Homer had said it all. And that in a sense, poets ever since have been trying to catch up with Homer. And this classical concept of war poetry Uh, is a theme that runs very strongly through much of the literature and much of the criticism of the period. If you read Arthur Cooch's lectures um, at Cambridge, for example, during the war, he's constantly referring back to classical literature as the starting point. But look at this next piece, which I think is really significant. The modern view of war as a diseased excrescence on society doesn't touch poetry. In other words, poetry is above and beyond this uh, gloomy expression of acceptance, heroism lies now, I can't imagine one writing this these days, heroism lies now not so much in successful killing, however fearless, as in how much the hero can endure more than others. And isn't this the origin of Yeats's later refusal to include Owen in his Oxford of Modern Verse? Because passive suffering, you know, how much you can endure this writer is arguing, has no place in poetry. It lacks completely the heroic dimension which should, they still are thinking, which should still be the the prime function of war poetry. It's very easy for us to assume that by the end of the war there was such disillusionment that the concept of Dulce decorum est had simply been laughed out of court. But one mustn't make that assumption. I found this uh, wooden cross in Durham Cathedral last summer. This is the actual cross which the DLI, the Durham Light Infantry, erected on the Butte de Valencourt, where many of their comrades were killed, the gallant officers, MCOs and men of the 6th, 8th and ninth Battalions were killed, and this is the actual cross which was put up in the immediate aftermath of the fighting. In other words, in the middle of the war and you will see dulce et decorum est pro patria mori written round the cross without any irony at all. And I think one, one mustn't assume that that phrase had become a phrase of contempt because it clearly had not. Similarly, and this is a memorial I've only just discovered it's in Hereford Cathedral notice this, it's to the Herefordshire Regiment if it didn't have that inscription in the middle of it, you could have thought that this was an entirely 18th century memorial. Mm-hmm. Look at this swag of, of fruit down here and the apples, the Herefordshire cider apples there. Even the lettering, you know, the V's mm-hmm. instead of the U's, a word like undaunted, <coughs> which has a kind of Mallory esque ring, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And men of stronger hands, that's the motto, Manu Forti, and hearts undaunted, fought for king and motherland. Now, i come across the idea of the mother country in war memorials around the world. New Zealand is constantly talking about sending their troops to serve the mother country. But motherland is not a word I have seen on many war memorials, if any, in this country. If any of you have, I'd be interested to know. But at the bottom, this is the point. What have we got here? If I should die, think only this of me. In other words, again, (coughs) Brooks' patriotic uh, enthusiasm is still treated with absolutely no irony whatsoever in the aftermath of the war. It still has, for many people, a resonance which makes it appropriate to be the epigraph on a formal memorial in a very formal place, uh, Hereford Cathedral. So, whatever we bring to our discussion and our thinking about war poetry now, in the 21st century, I think we have to remember that we we, we shouldn't be patronising about this it was purely and perfectly appropriate in the eyes and minds of many people to use still in the aftermath of the war phrases like dulce decorum est," like if I should die think only this of me without any sense that they are saying something which had been completely and irrevocably undermined by the events of 1914 to 18. Thus far I will go along with some of the uh, historians but not I have to say with Paxman this was in the Times earlier this, uh, last month, 14th of March. There we are, up there. And I found this in the most extraordinary piece. You'll notice, of course, it's not helped by the sub-editors themselves. You've got Sassoon up there, and down here you've got a still from the film of Warhorse, <laughs> And you'll be aware that Michael Morpurgo has become a kind of hate figure with, for professors uh, and people like uh, Gary Sheffield and, and so on. But it's really not fair to Morpurgo to use that image there, because the film, as indeed uh, the stage play, makes one fundamental difference between the book which Morpurgo wrote uh, and the media versions, because the book. How, how many of uh, you have actually read War Horse? I'm glad that a few of you have, because you will remember that the narrator, the voice, the consciousness of that novel is the horse himself. Not the boy, not the family, nobody else, it's the horse. It is a a horse's eye view of the First World War. And actually I think what Montpogo was doing was a profoundly interesting experiment in that book. In this article itself, over here, these are the things that he's quoted as saying. Jeremy Paxman said the war was only ever taught as poetry now, adding, it really won't do. All that's taught is about the pointless sacrifice. It's not helpful to see the whole thing through the eyes of poetry and he talks about half-baked prejudices. Well, I'm not sure, actually, whose half-baked prejudices we're dealing with here. He says, it's too easy. The big question is why Owen, after writing his anti-war poetry, and so soon after his letter of protest, decided to go back and fight. Luxuriating in the horror of the thing really won't do doesn't set out to answer really interesting questions. You can hear Paxman's voice behind all this, I hope. What I think would give Paxman pause for thought would be to discover, if he bothered to read, why Owen and why Sassoon did actually go back. This is what (coughs) Sassoon writes in Siegfried's Journey. Meg was referring to that book a couple of times this morning. I should be returning to the voices with no belief in what I was doing. I should go through with it in a spirit of loneliness and attachment because there was no alternative. Going back was the only way out of an impossible situation. This is hardly somebody who has suddenly rediscovered his crusading enthusiasm for the war. At the front, I should at least find forgetfulness, and I'd rather be killed than survive as one who'd wangled his way through by saying that the war ought to stop. Well, interesting to read that in the light of the conversation we were having at the end of Meg's talk about whether or not he had been, or to what extent he might have been used by Bertrand Russell and co. uh, in the preparation and the publication of his statement better to be in the trenches with those whose experience I'd shared and understood than with this medley of civilians interesting phrase does Mm -hmm. suggest that his view of Bertrand Russell, Robert Ross Robert Robert Ross and um, Lady Otterlyn Morell and Virginia Woolf even had somewhat changed had been tempered, this medley of civilians and he was going back to be with the men he was meant to be looking after And I think it's a very important point to make that. I was interested too in the point that was made about Owen yesterday, that he decided to go back when Sassoon was injured yet again and came back so that Owen could carry on this business of being a witness. This is what Owen said in that famous last letter to his mother. My nerves are in perfect order. I came out in order to help these boys, directly by leading them as well as an officer can indirectly by watching their sufferings that I may speak of them as well as a pleader can I have done the first very important letter and I shall be coming back to that in a a moment but look at this for me, he, that's Owen is the greatest of all the war poets the author of some of the most stunning poetry of the 20th century and the voice of a generation you recognise the author of that? Yeah. It's Paxton. <laughs> I, I wonder how reflective a person Jeremy Paxman actually is. I mean, if on the one hand he's saying that we shouldn't be using poetry because it, it gives a distorted view of the war and so on, and yet on the other hand he's talking about Owens as being the voice of a generation, surely if he is the representative voice of a the generation, then we certainly should be teaching war poetry. And we should be focusing, as teachers and as critics and as students and as readers, on what Owen has to say. I find this inconsistency of the, in the way in which the war poets at the moment are being attacked very frustrating indeed. That's the end of my two minutes hate. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> the letters of Owen first found a public uh, voice, as it were, when Edmund Blunden published a number of them in his memoir prefacing the poems, the edition of Owen's poems, in 1931. And this is what Blunden had to say. Peace came, men returned home, it seemed as though all the bugles in the world might blow without ever luring one of them again into battle. Interesting to see the bugle making another appearance. But in a short time it was apparent that the peace was imperfect, her olive branch might easily turn into a rifle grenade. A threat hangs over us even now. This is 1931, not 1939, beginning of the 30s. A threat hangs over us even now. The transmutation even of the European tragedy into a lending library fashion shows anew how easy it is for humanity to follow a dream. What's he referring to there? He's referring to this sudden glut of publications between 1928 and 1930. The memoirs the novels, the collections of poems indeed not excluding his own here and of course um, Undertones of War was one of the earliest books to, to create this sudden end of the 20s uh, revival of interest in the First World War and he asks his readers, London does to to look at what is actually going on in Owen's poetry now that it is Ten, eleven, twelve years after his death. Here, i.e. in his poems, Owen will be found achieving his object of pleading. Being dead, he speaks. Notice the the biblical Mm -hmm. echo there. He speaks as a soldier. And I think it's a very important point to make. I hope I'm not anticipating what Margie is about to say. That we realise that what (coughs) Blunden is saying here is that it was necessary that Owen had gone back as a soldier because it gives him the authority now, in the after-war period and in the anticipation of what may come later, in the end of the 30s, to speak with real authority about what soldiers went through and why and whether or not it was worth it. I want, therefore, to look with you at this poem. It's on your handout. Blunden's own poetry of the after war period, and indeed the poetry as we've just seen this morning of Sassoon and of Richard Aldington, you will see that the survivors of the war were the ones who saw themselves as ghosts. Not the dead, but the survivors. And so here is Blunden, as it were, talking to somebody who is more alive now than he is. Blunden talking to the dead Owen. To W.O. and his kind. If even you, so able and so keen and master of the business you reported, seem now almost as though you had never been, and in your simple purpose nearly thwarted, what hope is there? What harvest from those hours deliberately and in the name of truth endured by you? Your witness moves no powers. A real sense of frustration and anguish that the very fact of of Owens having been there seems now to be almost uh, disregarded, almost unimportant. Your witness moves no powers and younger youth, the next generation coming up, the post-war generation, resents your sentient youth. You would have stayed me with some parable, the grain of mustard seed, the boy that thrust his arm into the leaking dyke to quell the North Sea's onrush. Would you were not dust. With you, I might invent and make men try some genuine shelter from this frantic sky. I find that uh, plea there, would you were not dust, uh, almost heartrending. Don't forget, Blunden never met Owen. He only encountered him through coming across the poetry, working with his new friend Siegfried Sassoon on editing the poems that he encountered. But for Blunden, Owen becomes the key figure. Frequently in his own poems, he is trying to find this lost friend, the friend he never quite had. There's a very remarkable poem uh, called, I've got the title right, uh, August the 1st, 1931, which is Exactly halfway through Owen's, uh, uh, Blundon's own life. And he's trying to make sense of where he's got to and where he's going to. And the person that he's really looking for is Owen. Now, I want to say something about the historians again. And I want to focus on these two books. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. Jeremy Black is Professor of Education uh, of History at Exeter and David Reynolds has just published this book which I want to say straight away I think in many ways is a very illuminating book indeed I don't want to dismiss it or dis it but I want to dis a bit of it um, I, I have rather less patience with, with this one I have to say this is something that David Reynolds says about Blunden in 1928 Blunden published a little <coughs> volume called Undertones of War a reminiscence of 1914-18 talk about belittling a book you know, a little volume there's nothing little about undertones of war. if you buy it in the shop now it's a pretty hefty several hundred you know two and a half uh, two hundred and fifty pages plus a, a reminiscence you know as if it's some sort of, a kind of slightly sentimental looking back a nostalgic looking back, which of course is the very opposite of what it is. I must go over the ground again, Blunden wrote in the preface, more perhaps says Reynolds that any of the poetic survivors of the Great War, Blunden, trod the Menin Road and the Anchor Valley for the rest of his life. Of course, that's true, leaving an indelible mark on our understanding of what constitutes war poetry. For Reynolds, and he makes this case quite clearly, Blunden is actually the key figure, not simply because of his own experience as a a soldier and his own book, Undertones of War, but because of the way he became an advocate for the war poets, and particularly, of course, for Owen. And Reynolds, in this book, and I've suggested that if you want in your further reading to, to get hold of this book, it's the chapter called Generations, in which he discusses uh, Blunden's importance. He looks at the various documents and the various dates in which Blunden is writing. He talks, first of all, for example, about Blunden's preface to Brereton's anthology of 1930. And in that anthology, in, in that preface, Blunden charts what, what Reynolds calls a learning curve. It becomes, if you like, the kind of orthodoxy that the poetry of the First World War moves in this direction, starting with Rupert Brooke, and then moving next from Brooke to Charles Hamilton Sorley. I'm sorry that we haven't heard more about Sorley this weekend. I, I think he's somebody who deserves further study and care. I mentioned to you that he died uh, in the latter part of 1915. He was killed at the Battle of Luce. And interestingly, I've got here a page from the Cambridge University Reporter uh, of December 1916. So just exactly a year after um, Saul's death, CUP, Cambridge University Press, are advertising a new edition of Saul's only book, Marlborough, and other poems. It's already gone into six impressions, and this is the third edition in less than a year, which suggests just how influential, or how popular Saul's poetry had <coughs> been. And this is what the CUP um, blurb says. Sorry, I'm to put my glasses on for this. The shrine of fame may possibly be denied him by the accident of faith of death, To the shrine of poetry he had indubitably pierced. The marching song, all the hills and vales along, is one of the bravest and most universal of the war songs that this war has brought. Likely gallant though it is, it goes deep in thought and builds its carelessness on the eternal. I'm not sure if reading that poem today, you know, and the singers are the chaps, who are going to die, perhaps, actually has really a light, gallant touch to it. There's an irony, I think, in the poem, which C.U.P.'s blurb writer has missed. Or, again, it's this idea that I was dealing with a moment or two ago, that we now read into this poetry an irony that was not seen, not read into it at the time of its publication. But I think it's a surprise to see just how important Sorley was that his book had gone into six impressions and three new editions in less than a year. So, Sorley comes after Brooke in this kind of development of war poetry uh, as provided by Blunden, followed by Sassoon and then culminating in Owen. That's the, the sequence. Brooke, Sorley, Sassoon, Blunden. And frankly, that is a direction which nearly all other editors have gone in. Silkin, particularly, in his introduction, focuses very much on that. But you will notice there's no reference to Rosenberg. And that's perhaps a feature of the fact that Rosenberg's poetry itself was not nearly well enough known in the 20s and 30s. And we've heard from Jean exactly why that was. It's also significant, I think that it is a very, very closely defined little group. It's a group, of course, in a sense of Blunden's own friends and acquaintances. I'm not saying that he knew sorely, but Marlborough was not a million miles away from Christ Hospital, where Blunden was educated. It, it helped to reinforce this, this stereotype of the war poets as coming from this very small, you know, inward-looking clique of public school officer-class uh, young men and that was the anthology in 1930 the Brereton one where Blunden first set out this thesis he then in the following year 1931 publishes his own edition of Owen's poetry and we heard from Guy about that uh, just yesterday and I thought that was very interesting to see how clear sorry not Guy from John but very interesting to see how Blunden's responsibility as editor helped to shape the poems that we have today. Uh, uh, And John, in his handout, showed one of the poems which we wouldn't have if it hadn't been for Blunden's editing. And then, in 1954, Blunden edits Gurney's poetry. And we've heard from Philip just how much work there still is to do on the editing of Gurney. But it was Blunden right at the start who was leading the way in in bringing to our attention somebody who had just been written out of the story altogether up to that point and indeed when um, Brian Gardner produces his anthology Up the Line to Death uh, the next year again Blunden is asked to write a foreword to it and in his own introduction Gardner says I'm sorry there are various people I haven't had room for uh, uh, and that includes Gurney so he, he acknowledges that Gurney exists but he doesn't find space for him in that anthology, and that became a very influential anthology. So, once again, the, the, the canon is, is restricted by the decisions of anthologists. I think this is an important point to make. Uh, even, I believe, uh, John Silkin actually had to enlarge the number of poems he included by, by Gurney in his second edition, and it was really uh, Silkin's edition which for the first time also introduced women but not until the second edition again now I remember John Silkin as the editor of Stand when I was a student at Durham he used to come around to toting copies of Stand and he produced this uh, anthology while I was a student and it had a profound effect because for Silkin himself Jewish Rosenberg was the key poet and so that helped to sort of tilt the balance, it made us rethink the way we were thinking about war poetry and who was and who was not part of the canon. But as we've seen, this process continues to this day. Again, I don't think, while all the time I was at university and even when I was doing my work on Richard Aldington, I don't think I remotely considered Edward Thomas to belong in the area of war poetry. And we can see now just how influential that move has been. I'd like at this point just to look at one more quotation from these uh, historians and this is from Jeremy Black this is a a one minute hate coming up here the standard images of the war both literary and visual have been ably criticised by military historians who pointed out the problems created by a very selective reading of a misleading literary legacy doesn't need explaining he says the legacy is by definition misleading notably of works published in 1928-30. So, starting with Undertones of War, going on through Memoirs of an Officer, and referring to the novels that were being published at this time. Not just English novels, but uh, books like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, the Remark, and so on, but books too, like uh, Manning's Her Private We, and specifically a novel by Richard Aldington, one of the first of the British war novels really to create a major uh, sensation his novel Death of a Hero Memoirs, says Black are often unreliable as history but they're what the public and the media tend to rely on for their history because they offer triumph over adversity as well as futility, there's that word and pathos as themes whereas straightforward scholarship (coughs) is considered too dull I will refrain from commenting further So, having got to this point, I'd like to read a poem that I suspect most of you won't be familiar with. It's the poem that comes as an epilogue to Aldington's novel, Death of a Hero. I'm sorry I haven't printed this very well. It comes at the bottom of the page and then over on to the next one. Death of a Hero ends with the hero, who is very definitely not a hero... Standing up and getting mown down deliberately by machine gun fire, he can't stand it any longer. He literally commits suicide uh, on the front, at the front. It's very much a contemporary and a very satirical, a very angry novel. But in the epilogue, Aldington suddenly distances himself. He sets this, as you can see, eleven years after the fall of Troy. 1929, 11 years after 1918. 11 years after the fall of Troy, we, the old men, some of us nearly 40, met and talked on the sunny rampart over our wine while the lizards scuttled in dusty grass and the crickets chirred. Some bared their wounds, some spoke of the thirst dry in the throat and the heartbeat in the dinner battle. Some spoke of intolerable sufferings, the brightness gone from their eyes and the grey already thick in their hair. And I sat a little apart from the garrulous talk and old memories. And I heard a boy of twenty say petulantly to a girl seizing her arm, Oh, come away. Why do you stand there listening open-mouthed to the talk of old men? Haven't you heard enough of Troy and Achilles? Why should they bore us forever with an old quarrel and the names of dead men we never knew and dull forgotten battles? And he drew her away. And she looked back and laughed as he spoke more contempt of us, being now out of hearing. And I thought of the graves by desolate Troy, and the beauty of the young men now dust, and the long agony and how useless it all was, and the talk still clashed about me like the meeting of blade and blade. And as they, too, moved further away, he put an arm about her and kissed her, and afterwards I heard their gay, distant laughter. And I looked at the hollow cheeks and the weary eyes and the grey-streaked heads of the old men, nearly forty, about me. And I, too, walked away in an agony of helpless grief and pity. I've always found that, in fact, one of the most moving uh, of war poems. But it interested me very much that it seemed to be a a very personal, and in the view of the historians, a a very partial view. You know, this idea that everybody had simply stopped being interested in the war. And then I came across a book only in the last couple of months. I was lent it, I'd never heard of it before, called The Bickersteth Diaries. Is this a book that anybody's come across? The Bickerseth family were very much involved in the war. There were three brothers, Morris, who was killed on the Somme, Julian, who became an army padre, and Bergen, I don't know where the first name comes from, who became a major in the war and and received the military cross. He, He was a staff officer in the latter part of the war. I'm very keen to promote this book not I have anything to do with it whatsoever, but I, I found it fascinating. Julian, the uh, chaplain, spent quite a lot of time as a chaplain to men who were being executed as, uh, you know, shot at dawn as deserters. And his account of spending the last night with one such deserter, I find uh, one of the most remarkable documents in the war. The diaries were kept because his, their mother, here in, in, in England, kept a diary from the moment the war broke out Partly because their ch- her children were dispersed when the war broke out around the world. Julian, in fact, was in Africa. rather well, like Rosenberg was in Africa, South Africa, at the start of the war. Like Owen was in France. And she kept this diary, and whenever letters came from her children, she, cycled, she recycled them on so that the whole family kept in touch throughout the war. And that's the basis of this novel. Uh, it's not a novel, uh, of this book, The Bickersteth Diaries. And at the very end of it, as a, an epilogue, Bergen, the one who had been uh, the staff officer, the major, who had never doubted the war at all, I mean absolutely the sort of straight down the line um, British middle class conservative approach to the war, he wrote the final entry, 1931. And I just quote you uh, a piece from what you've got printed in front of you, you can read the rest of it, but on the top of the last page. He's talking about how his own children, say they find the... Battle of the Somme, more remote than the Battle of Waterloo. This is only 1931. And yet the younger generation are saying, just as in the Audington poem, this means nothing to us now. Perhaps, says Bikesteth, perhaps we do not talk enough about our experiences in France and Flanders, but if that's so, it's because we're afraid of being bores, and also because we realise how hopeless a task it is to attempt Even the simplest account of those stupendous days, interesting words, stupendous, I didn't mean they were stupendously exciting or just almost inconceivably uh, enormous. This very indifference of the younger generation creates a bond between all those who fought. We are conscious of belonging to a fraternity of all those who had common experiences in the trenches. A couple of weeks ago I was in France giving a, a lecture to a conference of teachers in Paris on rethinking war poetry and I found to my surprise that I had a, a couple of Americans in the audience both of whom were Vietnam veterans uh, and they said to me afterwards the thing that we found absolutely when we came back from Vietnam is that there was a total disconnect between our experiences and those of our friends our families and the public at large back in the States Simply people not only couldn't begin to conceive of what we were going through, they didn't want to engage with it. And I think that is a very fair representation of how many soldiers in the First World War experienced that extraordinary thing of coming back. Some of them came back uh, on a Friday night. They, they wake up Friday morning in, in the trenches. By Friday night, Sassoon so Aldington was able to go for a meal In the Cafe Royal in London. And it was that much of a sort of extraordinary culture shock. And hard to imagine how anybody can really cope with that sort of change. So I was really intrigued to find this Bickersteth diary book, which actually, if you like, validates the ideas that are expressed in that poem by Aldington. And indeed, not just the one Aldington poem, but but much of the writing of the war poets. Uh, in their diaries, in their memoirs and in their poetry, which are now being uh, so dismissed as a selective reading of a misleading literary legacy. I really want to challenge that idea that this legacy is either selective or misleading. I want to come back just quickly to the letter that Owen wrote to his mother, the one that begins, my nerves are in perfect order, I came out in order to help these boys. As I said, This was first published in 1931 in Blunden's introduction to Owen's poetry. And I suddenly realised that there was a a link here. My nerves are in perfect order. And it's a link to W.H. Auden, who in 1933 publishes uh, a long poem which begins here on the cropped grass. He's standing on on the Malvern Hills. This was the time when Auden, as a young man, was actually teaching at a prep school at Colwall, just outside Malvern itself. And it's a long poem in which he meditates, among other things, on the war poets themselves and on the soldiers of the First World War. And I'm just quoting the last bit of the poem. It's three or four pages long. You can find it in Edward Mendelssohn's uh, wonderful volume, The English Order. But the voice here of the speaker is the voice of the dead soldiers of the First World War. Call us not tragic... This is Auden putting the words into their mouths. Falseness made farcical our death. This is Auden again of the younger generation. He lived through the war but only as a boy. And now in 1933 he is writing off, if you like, the experience of, of the soldiers in terms of its value. Falseness made farcical our death. Not, Nor brave. Ours, don't call us brave, ours was the will of the insane to suffer by which we could not live we gladly died and now we've gone forever to our foolish graves that's an extraordinary sort of kick in the teeth and it, 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 it's very indicative I think of, of Auden and his generation and the influence that they had on the way in which we think about the poets and the poetry of the First World War because look at the way it just follows the Priory clock that's more than Priory chimes briefly and I recollect I'm expected to return alive my will effective and my nerves in order. There is Auden, young Auden, quoting directly from the Owen letter that he has read just a year or so before in Blunden's edition of Owen's poetry. The poetry is in the pity, Wilfrid said. That phrase, that key phrase of Owen's, already being picked up. And you notice how young Auden, Claims a kind of affinity. He doesn't say, as he very easily could have done, the poetry is in the pity, Owen said, Wilfrid said. Mm -hmm. And in the next line, he doesn't say Mansfield in her journal, but not even Catherine, Cathy. This sense of already being part of the conversation, part of the elect elite group of of writers to which Auden uh, had sort of signalled his admission. Cathy in her journal, to be rooted in life, that's what I want. These moods give no permission to be idle, for men are changed by what they do, and through loss and anger the hands of the unlucky love one another. I think it's a very interesting anticipation, this poem, of his celebrated poem, First, September the 1st, 1939. No, we must love one another or die, that famous, in Auden's own view, infamous line. So I wanted to reflect on this for a moment because Orton's background was a very interesting one. His father was a close friend of Rivers, Sassoon's um, psychologist. Auden's father uh, and Captain Rivers worked closely together uh, as, as medical uh, uh, and psychological officers. But where had Auden been, where had he been sent by his father? He'd been sent to Gresham's school in Norfolk. And Gresham's was an extraordinary school is quite an unusual school. Still, it had a large. It was a very small school in the First World War, and a very high proportion of its senior boys, the, the school prefects and so on, had been killed as young officers in the First World War. And indeed, the headmaster of the school, who was one of the great reforming headmasters at the start of the 20th century, a man called Howson, died of grief. I mean, almost literally, died of grief. There's a very interesting book called When Heroes Die by Susan Smart, uh, which explores this. And in 1921, this war memorial window for the school chapel was commissioned. I'm sorry it's not a very clear picture. In fact, it's a hideously unclear picture. But take it from me. Up the top there, you have the Dove of Peace. And here, you have the City of Peace. There is no reference in this picture, either to any Christian symbol or figure, or indeed to any soldier. And war memorial windows, of which there are thousands around the country almost invariably have somewhere a figure of either St. George or St. Michael. Or they have a scene of the battlefield. I have to tell you, this is still going on. There's a most wonderful new window in Gloucester Cathedral by the stained glass designer Tom Denny as a memorial to Ivor Gurney. It hasn't even been dedicated yet. It's been dedicated at the end of this month. And it has the most graphic image of uh, no man's land I have ever seen in a wall memorial window. It shows... Shell holes with drowned and drowning bodies in it, and then a ghostly army on the other side of the crater. In Gloucester Cathedral, 2014, war memorial windows depicting the First World War are still being created. But this window is, in my experience, unique because it is, in effect, a pacifist war memorial window. And very interestingly, Gresham's was the first school in Britain to join the League of Nations Association. In 1920, the next headmaster invited the League of Nations president uh, in England, who was a, a General General Rogers, Roberts, to come and speak. And as a result, the school joined the League of Nations, which was in effect saying, we will declare ourselves as a school in favour of peace for the future. I'm putting it very crudely, but in essence that's what it was. And of course... This wasn't a school at which only people, uh, only Auden lived. The other major influence at the time, Benjamin Britten, who was a, contempor- a younger contemporary of Auden's, also at this school. And of course, as I told you at the start, by the time Britten came to write the War Requiem 1962, he was himself a committed pacifist. And I find it very interesting that both Auden and Britten both came out of this one school, which had in effect declared itself a pacifist-leaning educational establishment. And you'll find in nearly all the accounts, certainly in David Reynolds' account, uh, of, of how the First World War is now perceived. Beth- Britain's war requiem is regarded as one of the seminal, one of the seminal uh, documents uh, in, in that 1960s era, along with uh, What a Lovely War, uh, and so on for actually creating the sense of a world in which to be a war poet is to be an anti-war poet. I'm coming to an end, but I just want to say one quick thing about this whole interesting business of the overcoats, which was raised (laughs) yesterday. I've just mentioned the fact that Auden and Britain were effectively pacifists and that their education had helped to create that. Another key pacifist artist of the 1920s was Eric Gill and this is an image on a war memorial just outside Cambridge at Trumpington just on the way to Grantchester 1921 and I've known this image for a long time and I've admired it and I do admire it hugely, the returning soldier you can see there's even a signpost east, west, he's coming back home the weight of his coat drags him down He's almost dust, uh, coming along the ground. His pack drags him down. His rifle pulls him down. The weight, the effort, the, the despair of the image is a very powerful one. And it suddenly occurred to me yesterday, listening to what Stuart was saying about David Jones, that I had remembered that David Jones himself had produced a, an engraving on the similar theme. And here it is. Uh, actually I have now discovered that uh, and this is on the Imperial War Museum website so I had no excuse for not having discovered it before (coughs) that this image by uh, David Jones was produced specifically so that Gill could have something to work from in carving that relief so an interesting very interesting collaboration you'll remember that we saw that image of Jones with his too-large overcoat. Age 19 he is there. So I find it really interesting that these coats become so important. Look at this memorial. This is Brickville in Normandy. Most of the images you see of the French poilu show them in their overcoats. And there's a poem that I haven't got time now to read, but I would wish to draw it to your attention. It's by Mary Borden, uh, of whom Jane Potter spoke uh, so well, Uh, on Thursday afternoon this extract from The Song of the Mud a remarkable poem but this idea that overcoats uh, and coats coated in mud become a kind of standard image that's the poem it's it's on your sheets but look at this war memorial this is in Exeter and here is a soldier who is so weighed down by his coat and the cold, even the butter that the barrel of his rifle has to be covered up and his legs are clad in rags as well to keep him. Held. And even the patination on this huge coat, which almost drowns him, is designed to show the mud. This is not simply age. That some of that there is actually built into the uh, into the bronze of the of the original cast. An extraordinary image, and perhaps the most telling of them all is this one by Charles Sergeant Jagger on the Royal Artillery War Memorial at Hyde Park Corner where the overcoat has become a pall, And you'll notice the hand straight is almost becoming like a skeletal hand. So these coats, uh, this burden of your uniform, of what you are doing as a soldier, is reflected so powerfully here. And I was very grateful to hear Gerald describing yesterday uh, statues and war memorials as being like physical poems. Mm -hmm. I think that puts it very well indeed. I'm coming to the end of my time, so let me just finish with one poem that I hope that will be more widely remembered than it is at the moment. And it is a poem about remembrance. It's Edmund Blunden's poem, Can You Remember? Published in nineteen thirty six. Yes, says Blunden, I still remember. The whole thing in a way. How many times have we come across the thing, Ivor Gurney, that wet thing? And there was a poem uh, this morning in Sassoon that Meg was reading where the word thing is is the only word that can be used because there is nothing that you can really say to describe this thing other than that word. I still remember the whole thing in a way. Edge and exactitude depend on the day. Of all that prodigious scene there seems scanty loss, though mists mainly float and screen, canal, spire and foss. Though commonly I fail to name that once obvious hill, this is Hill 60, where once we went and whence we came to be killed or kill. One of the accusations frequently made about uh, by historians at the moment is that the war poets give the impression that they never fought or never killed anybody. It isn't true. If you read what they say, if you read what Owen says, if you read what Blunden says, if you read what... Uh, Gurney says they all admit they all acknowledge that killing was what they were doing they weren't simply sitting there waiting to be killed but here they are they came to be killed or kill these mists are spiritual and luminous obscure evolved a countless circumstance of which I'm sure my memory is not letting me down at which of which at the instance of smell sound smell change and stir new old shapes forever instantly recur, and some are sparkling, laughing, singing, young, heroic, mild, and some incurable, twisted, shrieking, dumb, defiled. I don't think any of us should underestimate the impact of the war on the war poets, but nor should we, and certainly nor should historians, underestimate the impact of war poetry today. Thank you very much.